thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. And if you're the generous sort, you can support the podcast through Patreon with either a recurring or a one-time donation. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and my guest today is Gabrielle Carmine. Gabby is a fourth-year PhD student in marine science and conservation at Duke's Marine Geospatial Ecology Lab at the Duke Marine Lab. Welcome to the podcast, Gabby. Hi, Anders. Thank you so much for having me. So we are here today to talk about the High Seas Treaty that was recently, um, I don't know if I want to say passed, I'm not sure what the right word is, uh, by the UN. And Gabby was an avid, I guess you were an observer, you weren't necessarily involved in the negotiations, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I was an observer, but as a PhD student, you're sort of, you're in the hallways and in the more the informal negotiating rooms or a lot of the negotiating rooms with delegates. So a delegate, as I form relationships with these delegates, they'll sort of come to me and say, what did you think about that? What do you think about this? And you sort of give them your thoughts and your thinking of how a certain article sounds or what it does or what it means or what you think it could mean, what it sort of leaves out based on what you know about the marine environment. Speaking of which, before we even get into the treaty, can we talk about you a little bit and your area of expertise? Sure. Um, So I am a fourth-year PhD student um, in marine science and conservation, and I am focused on high seas conservation as it relates to fisheries. Um, And that includes the beneficial ownership and corporate actors involved in fisheries, as well as other governance including regional fisheries management organizations. So beneficial ownership basically means who is actually profiting from a fish catch. Because oftentimes in high seas fishing, the listed owner of a fishing vessel is not the actual company. A lot of times they're shell companies. So my first chapter is still the only work in the published literature showing beneficial ownership of the high seas fishing fleet. Got it. Interesting. So providing transparency and responsibility to what's yes, going on. Yes, exactly. And okay. I, I would refer to myself sort of as a marine sustainability scientist using quantitative tools and methods. So I use satellite data to find fishing vessel activity using AIS Wait, maybe I should go back a little bit. So looking at, so I use satellite data to look at fishing activity and that uses machine learning algorithms to determine what kind of fishing activity they're using. And this is partnered with Global Fishing Watch. Okay. Very cool. Okay. So now let's talk about this treaty. Um, can you give us a little bit background on where it began and then we'll get into what in particular it does and how it got negotiated? Yes, totally. So first, just to what you were mentioning at the beginning. So this treaty was not adopted. What happened is this past week is the text has been finalized, which is, I think, the biggest hurdle. But this all started, it began 21 years ago. So informal discussions around a high seas treaty began 21 years ago. 
And in 2004, the UN adopted a resolution that established an ad hoc, open-ended, informal working group to study issues related to the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And that has now become what we are calling the BBNJ Treaty or the Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction Treaty, or if you're reading the New York Times or the Guardian, the High Seas Treaty. After that ad hoc working group in 2017, the UN General Assembly decided to convene these intergovernmental conferences. And those are the spaces where we find these multilateral uh, negotiations happening. And this is elaborating and deciding on what the text would be. And that started in 2017. And there were supposed to be four of these. And at the end of the fourth, we were supposed to have a finalized text. When was the fourth held? Yeah. So the fourth was supposed to be in March of 2020. And COVID sort of got in the way of that. So that was postponed. Um, And then the fourth intergovernmental conference ended up being in March of 2022. So March of 2022, I was an observer for that one as well. Um, There were some issues with getting observers in the room because of COVID restrictions. So only a certain amount of observers were allowed in the rooms. Mm. And then the text wasn't agreed to then. But to be honest, I don't think a lot of people, at least I didn't expect it to happen. All the momentum had been lost. And momentum is super important here. Mm. So The next negotiations were in August. Um, That was IGC-5. And that was when I talked to you last. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think everyone really thought the text would be finalized and we got super close. And then at 11 p.m. on the last day, they sort of paused the clock. And so what happened was this past intergovernmental conference wasn't intergovernmental conference six. It was the resumed fifth conference. But it was the same as the all the others. It was two full weeks and a little more. And then at the end of that, that's when the text was decided. And there was the feeling in the room was if the text was not decided on then, a lot of people were very frustrated and ready to take their ball and go home. Yeah. So it was a big deal that it happened. So the areas beyond national jurisdiction are a huge part of the earth, two thirds of the ocean or something like that. And so these are the areas we're talking about. And the exclusive economic zones are the zones around the shoreline of every country, which extends 200 nautical miles, I believe. Is that correct? That's totally correct. Yeah, hit the nail on the head. So we're talking about everything beyond that. Maybe we should start with you telling us just really briefly what this new treaty, the text will do. And then I'd love to hear about the frustration and hear about all the behind the scenes negotiations that were going on. What were the sticking points? So this treaty is separated into four focus areas. The first one is marine genetic resources. So this includes the sharing of benefits from these resources. So what that means in layman's terms, I have a professor Steve Rohde at Duke, who refers to it as who owns the crab that cures cancer, right? So if you, there are so many discoveries that happen on the seafloor, there are so many discoveries that are, that happen in the ocean, who gets the non-monetary sharing, like who gets the non-monetary benefits, and how do we share the monetary benefits? So that's what that section was discussing. Can you tell us how that was resolved, that question? 
So this is all decided in Article 11 of this treaty. Keep in mind, this is the text as you have it now. I'll make sure that you have the link for the updated text. So if anyone wants to Great. look through it, they can. But Great. these numbers of the articles are likely to change. Um, oh, I just gotcha. for, Okay, for the sections. Okay. Yeah, the section. Yeah, each article. But okay. currently, Article 11 has the fair and equitable sharing of benefits. So for non-monetary benefits, this means, you know, how to make sure that everyone in the world can access whatever is found or created or the genetic, um, the digital sequence of that, of whether it's secure for cancer or it's a skin cream, whatever mm -hmm. it happens to be. And this is all goes back to the common heritage of humankind, which is a core principle of the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea. A big thing, one big thing that happened um, was it was called the Common Heritage of Mankind. This legal text has, cha has changed it to the Common Heritage of Humankind. So anytime you hear someone say Common Heritage of Mankind, that's a fair uh, thing to correct them on. It's humankind and can we now. Just, um, boy, we're just going to keep digging holes here. So yeah. the common heritage of humankind is in contrast and was disputed by many of the people at the negotiations or the countries at the negotiations because it seems to oppose the freedom of the seas clause, right? Exactly. Um, it was a huge sticking point. It was actually the final sticking point. Wow. So it is... You know, it was a very important part, this common heritage of humankind. And when you think about the common heritage of humankind, you have to think of equity, right? This is a UN agreement. This is trying to find equity and access to all people on the planet. And this space has been called the common heritage of humankind. Um, and so this treaty helps find those fair and equitable sharing of benefits. To be clear, my expertise as a scholar and as a researcher is area-based management tools um, and these cross-cutting issues. Um, but common heritage of humankind was, you know, a very large part. And there's a, another scholar, um, Arn Langlet, who wrote a great piece on this a couple of years ago about how he thought this would you know, be one of the sticking points of the treaty. And hmm, you turned out to be right. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So, um, so who owns the crab that cures cancer? <laughs> yes. So if we go to like the monetary benefits, so the monetary benefits of these marine genetic resources and the digital sequence information on marine genetic resources, um, have to be shared fairly, equitably through the financial mechanism established under Article 52 for the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity of areas beyond natural, national jurisdiction. So that is a big deal that that was agreed to. This whole section was hidden from observers. So when we got the new text the last day or at 1.30 in the morning on that last night, we did not get this section. So what was, what's the point of that? I think observers didn't get it because it was so contested and they were nervous that it could upend negotiations would be my guess, but that is a guess. Uh, so I personally had 
not a good idea of what was happening in this space. I knew it was really contentious. And those negotiations were on the last day were all closed door. And so the reason this is contentious is because one group thinks that they should be able to patent the gene that cures cancer from the crab. And the other group says, no, you have to share that information. We, other people can use that information. Is that it in a nutshell? In a nutshell? Yes, totally. That is it. Um, And that's why we get into this issue of capitalism versus equity. Okay. So that was number one out of four that we have to go through. Yes. And then the next section is my particular expertise is the area-based management tools, including marine protected areas section. Okay. So now there was a lot of misinformation about this that was getting pumped out there. There sure was. Um, And I understand why there was misinformation. There's the push for protecting. There was misinformation saying that this treaty then protects 30% of the oceans by 2030. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not the case. And the reason why it matters that we say that it's, that that's not what this did is because this is just the legal framework to create marine protected areas, to create area-based management tools. And if civil society and people who are reading the New York Times and The Guardian believe that 30% of the ocean is protected, they no longer will pressure their states in, mm-hmm. to do that. Okay. So right. it's really important to correct that because we have not protected 30% of the ocean and we need to protect at least 30% of the ocean as a marine protected area where you cannot fish. Whether that will happen, I'm not sure. We can get into that. That's maybe a different podcast. But it is really important to clear up that misinformation because the pressure needs to stay on these states to have an ambitious conference of the parties when this is adopted. Okay. And I'm just going to quickly clarify that a conference of the parties is what the UN (laughs) creates whenever it has one of these treaties. There's a COP for climate change, for example, and a COP for the biodiversity treaty. And now there is a there's going to be a COP conference of the parties for um, the BBNJ every. Well, uh, the first COP will be one year after the entry into force. So that's where we're going to have the negotiations are going to go on. So there's a lot more contentious negotiating that's going to be going on. All of the contentious negotiation is left to go on. I think one of the biggest things is one of the negotiators at the end was saying, you know, thank you. Like we came to the end, we did it. And I, my friend and I turned to each other and we were like, this is the beginning. This is just the beginning of this. This is nowhere near the end. This is the prologue Mm -hmm. of how it started. This is really the beginning. Okay. So um, area-based management, MP Mm -hmm. and marine protected areas are marine protected areas by definition areas where there's no fishing or is there more nuance to it than that? So there are lots of different kinds of MPAs. Not all marine protected areas are created equal. There are one type of marine protected area called no entry, which means no one can go in it. Those are rare and they're usually not very large. The next kind of marine protected area is a no take marine protected area. Um, And that is where you can't fish or you can't take anything, but you can, you know, that's your classic like, marine parks where people will go scuba diving and things like that. Mm -hmm. But there was no fishing there. And then the last kind is a multi-use MPA where fishing is allowed. And that 
you know, myself, I do not consider those effective MPAs because industrial fishing generally does undermine the effectiveness of an MPA. There is, I can send you. The, well, that, would, that seems like a no brainer. You would think. Yeah. You would think it's a no brainer, but that what I just said is actually quite controversial in this space. Okay. But there are more, IUCN has formal protected area categories. So I can send those as well, mm -hmm. going from okay. the strict nature reserve all the way to protected area multi-use. Okay. Sounds good. And what about your area of tracking down um, ships that are fishing mm -hmm. and are, what do they, do they have a term for them? Ghost ships or zombie ships or something like that? <laughs> there is the, so I don't necessarily work as much with the dark fleet. The dark it's fleet. The dark Ooh. fleet. Ooh, uh, that's scary. Yeah. They're spooky. Um, I look at vessels that have AIS, this device on their ship that can be picked up by satellites. And that's the um, AIS that you're referring to. Yes, exactly. What does that that's stand the for? AIS. Automatic identification system. Okay. And which was originally created for ships not to hit into each other. But it now has an additional use for conservation and scholars and researchers to look at where they are because they can be reached by a certain satellites. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we can see how they're fishing. Uh, based on using machine learning algorithms, you can see how they're fishing. So if a vessel is going around in a circle, we know that they're persaning. Or if they're going in a line and then going back and then going in a line, they're likely long lining. And so you can train. Interesting. Um, yeah. Cool. And to okay. look at fishing hours in that way. So this relates to my work in a lot of ways, because I look at who is fishing the high seas, how are they profiting? And then how are these governance bodies enforcing their legislation on them or enforcing protection or enforcing these bodies? Or are they? And looking at the sort of mismanagement of high seas conservation as it relates to fisheries and corporations. So will it change this stuff? Does it have an impact on, on this, the treaty? I think it could. I think there's the bodies that I look at a lot are these regional fisheries management organizations. And up until now, they have been the only bodies looking at high seas fishing. And now there is a new legal framework in town. There is a new body that can create MPAs. One downside of this BBNJ treaty is they can't undermine RFMOs or these fisheries bodies, but they can give them recommendations. There is another check, which is what they need because regional fisheries management organizations are failing the high seas and have been failing the high seas. So just to clarify, the, the RFMOs are sort of separately negotiated, agreed upon between a few countries that have interest in a particular fishery on the that's outside of an EEZ that's on the high Yeah, seat. yeah. They're about like, there's 17 patchwork organizations across the high seas that are fishing management bodies. They are not created to protect. They are created to manage extraction. And that is felt in how we see the high seas biodiversity. Mm -hmm. It is managed extraction. And this treaty sort of, flips that on its head and says, well, what if we protect biodiversity and we don't just manage the extraction of it? Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
So implementing an MPA could also mean in the high seas would mean, well, what if we see a corporate actor in a certain MPA? We can identify that using AIS. Okay, so that was number two. Yes, area-based management tools, MPAs, I think probably got the most press and uh, is what I'm interested in. The next section is environmental impact assessments, which is sort of self-explanatory. Um, these are, this body is a is one UN body that is looking at all of the high seas, right? Two-thirds of the ocean. And there is a lot of extraction that goes on. There's a lot of potential extraction that's going to go on with deep sea mining. There's mm. um, There are so many anthropogenic activities happening from, you know, deep sea mining to submarine cables, you know, there are so many things that occur in the high seas on the seafloor and in the water column. So these environmental impact assessments would be a way to have one centralized body that is looking at what the potential impacts of an activity would be a new activity. So deep sea mining is going to be the big one there, probably. Potentially, there is also another organization. So a big part of this treaty is that, as I said, it can't undermine other bodies. And there is another organization, the International Seabed Authority, that manages the future of high seas deep sea mining. Deep sea mining has not happened yet in the high seas. What happens in a, a lot of these sections is going to be what kind of conference we get right? How ambitious are these states going to be? How can we hold them to the fire to stay ambitious and continue to protect the oceans and not just do it when there are reporters there? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then the next section is, is capacity building and technology transfer. So this section is really important when we think about equity in the high seas. This was the first section that the text was agreed to. And this section, the objective of this section is to assist particularly developing states to implement this agreement. And so this capacity building and marine technology transfer helps to sort of level the playing field in some way. So this, the types of capacity building and marine tech that are discussed are the sharing of relevant data, uh, making sure that all states have the appropriate equipment and capacity for people to use and maintain what they need, and you know, making sure that they have the tools that they need for effective monitoring. So for when it comes to MPAs, a big issue with MPAs is making sure they're not paper parks. And a paper park is what we call an MPA when there is a sort of polygon on a map without mm-hmm. effective monitoring and enforcement. Because a lot of times these MPAs need to be enforced in order to be maintained and in order to see those biodiversity targets. And that costs, that takes money and time. So this section would help with that as well. Okay. So those are the big four sections of the new agreement. Yeah. Now I want to hear all of the gossipy little details about sleeping on the floor of the UN and tell us about the negotiations. Yes, they were. The rumors are true. Many (laughs) of us slept on the floor of the UN that last day. Um, So this, the negotiations were two weeks long. The first week, again, like last time, 
felt a little slow. You know, people were re-bringing up points and texts that had been settled, which was confusing. And I, because going into this round, I thought it was going to be, you know, what they say is red lines only. So each state being like, this is the red line for my state. We cannot pass this. But a lot of delegates were bringing in things that they thought and other ideas and bringing in new text. And I, as an observer, was like, wait, this is, Hmm. we're already behind. We're like, was was that a negotiating tactic? Probably. I think like, yes. Well, there was definitely some filibustering for sure uh, by some States also slow rolling it. Also adding in things that they could then trade to take out for something Hmm. else that they wanted because they added that in. I, could bet that that would happen. You know, this is negotiations are people give, people take. Mm-hmm. And if you add in something that you don't really care about, it looks like you're giving up something that you do care about all of a sudden. So the first week was pretty slow. Then the second week it started to pick up and it was a roller coaster. So that Saturday in between the two weeks, we got the new text and it was covered in brackets. So in this negotiation, the brackets mean that that is not decided on or that was like proposed, but it still requires some negotiating. So the more brackets, the further away we are from a agreed upon text. Mm. So that was frustrating. And then during the week, it was hard to know. I think similar to last time, I would have given a different answer every day if I thought a treaty was going to be agreed to. And then like the last day, I would have given you a different answer every four hours. (laughs) I had the sense that it was going to fail, that it was going to fail again. What, what changed at the end? Who gave, who finally gave in? I think there were a lot of things that happened that last day. So negotiations were supposed to end Friday at six. And that's also when our badges as observers expire. So if we leave we're we can't come back. So when we found out it was going to go longer, we were like, I guess we're staying. And then by 4am, we were like, Oh, we're really staying, I guess let's, and we talked to, you know, some other people that said it's going to go well into tomorrow. So we were like, let's get a couple hours of sleep now, slept on the floor for an hour and a half or two. And then the next day, we went on. But I would say there were about six issues or seven issues that individually, all could have broken the treaty. And so one of the biggest ones that I was focused on was something called the opt-out agreement for MPAs. And that was happening in the cafe. And, you know, observers were sort of standing around that like sort of back, you know, 20 feet. Mm -hmm. But we could see the delegates sitting around literally like four or five pushed together cafe tables with the president of the negotiations in the middle. And the opt-out clause will allow individual states to just opt out of the MPA? Yes. I mean, this is very effective. No, it it isn't. Um, It's a problem. It is a major problem with the text. Uh, I would say it's maybe one of my, one of the bigger disappointments of the text. However, there were some wins and points that were put in to sort of prevent the opt out from getting out of hand. It's article 19 bis in decision making. And they, a state can make an objection to an area-based management tool or MPA. And this objection would mean that the state 
the state does have to go through a lot of legwork to put forth the objection. But one win of this is that a party making an objection has to adopt alternative measures or approaches that are equivalent in effect to the decision. And they can't adopt measures or take actions that undermine the effectiveness of the MPA and or MBMT. What that means is, so this was sort of the, this is what a lot of civil society pushed for to be added in if the opt-out was going to be in there, because it could not just be an opt-out of, that would really make the M- MPA section toothless. Absolutely toothless. You're right. Mm-hmm. And I still worry about these clauses of what they'll mean in practice. I still worry about it. For sure. I, don't, I don't even know what that means, what you just so described. What it means is that, let's say a state opts out of an MPA. They have to adopt an alternative MPA or area-based management tool that has the same effect as the originally proposed MPA. That just doesn't make any sense to me. What I don't... You have you opt out of the MPA and then you impose new rules on yourself that mimic the MPA. So what what does that mean in, in practical but terms? But it's on their terms. And so for some states, they are were nervous about a direct quote from one state was nervous about MPAs popping up all over. There was a lot of it is not consensus that MPAs are great and good in Mm -hmm. this community, I think it's fair to say. But the more important part is that they can't and it's they shall not do anything that undermines the effectiveness of the MPA. So this is where a lawyer is needed, right? So because that could mean to me, that means fishing in an MPA undermines the effectiveness of that MPA. Mm -hmm. So I would think that that would make this oh, that's so interesting. Just on this one point, I mean, it's so there was a lot of back and forth around the table in the Vienna Cafe. And one guy said, one person said, I want to an opt out clause. And the other one said, OK, you can have an opt out clause, except that if you opt out, you have to do exactly what you would have done, even if you hadn't yeah. opted out. And then we end up with a sort of bureaucratic jargon nightmare is is the. Is the entire treaty full of this sort of bureaucraties? Oh, man. Um, so one thing I'd like to clarify is that, you know, the opt-out agreement didn't just, you know, happen at the last minute. This was mm-hmm. put in, this has been in there for um, most, this has been discussed since the last IGC and then has been in there for all of this. And then we've sort of, you know, negotiations have sort of been happening as a push-pull. This was one of the things, another big part of that, Vienna Cafe, I think I was this dispute settlement, which we'll get to after. But the opt out is definitely a bureaucratic word salad sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because legally, you want to make sure that these things work. And if, and the option was this bureaucratic word salad or nothing. So basically, the, the bureaucratic word salad. For better, for worse, for better, it allowed them to come to agreement and have a treaty. For worse, it allows individual states to interpret it in different ways in in their own way. Yes. And that is when we get to what this treaty will be like in action. 
mm-hmm. what the conference of the parties will be like mm-hmm. and how ambitious they'll be, which is why it's so important that we don't say we already achieve achieve 30 by 30. Right. Okay. And also what legal scholars will say and agree to, because I'm not a legal scholar. I'm a researcher and a scientist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of look to them for that. Okay. Are there other parts of it that we should zero in on? You just mentioned another point. Yeah. The dispute settlement is a tricky bit and was a big sticking point and was one of those, you know, six or seven things that could have broken the treaty and after all of them. So when I was at the Vienna cafe, I was like near tears being like, you know, this could break it. A colleague of mine went by. He was like, this is going to break it. I think this is it. This is it. And it was, you know, 830 in the morning after we had slept on the floor. We were like, this is going to break it. And then they found a resolution. It was like, okay, what's the next one? And then that sort of happened for 40 hours, you know, that sort of like, are they going to get it? And it, so it wasn't, so it wasn't just, you know, a normal 40 hours. It was a very intense 40 hours yeah. Um, yeah. to the point where, you know, two hours before the end, I thought this treaty was not going to happen. A plenary was convened and the president of the treaty Rena Lee said, you know, let's try 30 minutes, 30 more minutes of negotiations. And in this plenary, the EU said, you know, maybe 30 ish minutes. And then, you know, there's a groan because they had been going for 40 hours and it was now, Mm. you know, 8 p.m. on Saturday. And some states were like, this is not psychologically possible to go much more. But so at that point, during that, like the two hours before the Texas agreed to, I thought there was no way. I was like, this is it. I can't believe this happened again. I turned to a friend. I said, how did this happen again? And then 30-ish minutes turned into two hours. There was applause. We found out the text was agreed to. Um, and then the video that everyone saw happened. But doesn't seem like the healthiest way to come to a rational agreement to govern two-thirds of the Earth's surface. It sounds like psychological torture, which ended up with maybe some suboptimal text. Right. I mean, it is hard. So as a, you know, as someone who teaches, you tell students not to leave an essay to the last night (laughs) because mistakes happen. And the UN just did that Mm -hmm. for this treaty. And that definitely makes me nervous. Um, I think this is a win and this is something to celebrate. I think there are these people on both sides of this argument on Twitter and in the media that say one on one people on one side, they're like, this has just saved the oceans. Mm. And then the other side that says, this is the worst thing that could have happened. It's absolute garbage. And neither of those are right. You know, Got got it. this is, you know, this is a great text. It is impressive what was agreed to. You know, as a conservationist, there's a lot more in there than I thought there would be. It is a lot better than I thought it would be, even at the end of the last treaty. Okay. And a lot of it remains to be seen, to be decided, as you said, right from the beginning at the future conference of the parties. Yes. Like the rules of procedure have yet to be decided. The scientific Mm -hmm. and technical body hasn't been decided. There's a compliance committee that hasn't been decided. Mm -hmm. And then also... We'll see what happens when an MPA is first proposed. Mm-hmm. What does that look like in action? Um, what are states going to stick to from the text? And what are they going to be sticklers on? And what are they going to say? Look, you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Because a lot of things in writing are, sometimes are different in action. I think one of the biggest things was just 
even though this text has these issues like the opt out agreement and the text that says, you know, this body can't undermine other bodies, even if those bodies off the record are bad and don't do what they're supposed to do and have seen the downfall of, you know, Atlantic bluefin tuna, let's say, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. you know, the fight isn't over. And like, there is a lot of good that can be done with this. And this is a legal framework, which means things are open to interpretation in both mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Okay. Well, so like you said, at the very start of our interview, this is just the beginning. This is just mm-hmm. the prologue, right? It's not the end. Okay. And what I just have to ask, what does it mean for your research? Does it make it easier, harder? I don't know what it means for my research yet. I think it, okay. well, because right now there are steps that need to be taken. So I think, you know, this, we won't see the first conference for, you know, maybe a couple of years. So, but I think for my research, it could mean a change for how high seas ocean conservation happens. There is a brand new mechanism for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it could change everything or, you know, it could only change a couple of things. I think it depends on what states decide to do. And I hope it changes a lot because a lot needs to be changed. Okay. Let's wrap it up on that. Excellent point. Gabby, so thank you so much for coming on the show today. That really was edifying. I learned a lot, and I really appreciate getting that background information. Thank you so much, Anders. I really appreciate the invitation to come back and chat about all things high seas conservation and governance. Great. So if people want to get a hold of you, how would they do that? They can reach out to me over email, and they can also find me on Twitter as well. Right. That's how I found you. My name is Anders Halverson. My guest today has been Gabrielle Carmine. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. You can download it, this one, past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or go to thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or get some awesome Fisheries Podcast shirts, hoodies, and stickers on Teespring. Thanks again, and remember, this is just the beginning.